Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta, Canada. And we're really excited to be starting up these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for the third season. If you've made it onto one of these in the past, you will know that we typically have a very good time. It's a free-flowing conversation um, and it's a lot of fun. So we've had the privilege of talking to many of you in the last bit and have heard stories of the connections that have been made both in person and online through these nights. And that was a big reason for why we're doing this for a third season. So tonight we're really excited to have Steve Campbell with us. Don't mind me if I end up getting confused because we've got Steve squared. We've got both of them here tonight. Um, So we might end up, we'll see how it goes, but I might just be like, Campbell, Kenyon, get on it. We'll see what happens. So with all of that being said, I'm really excited to hear about Steve's perspective on genetics and epigenetics. And like always, don't be afraid to go off on a tangent if you have questions for either of the steves be free free to ask them it doesn't doesn't have to stick to genetics so we can we can change it up a little bit our speakers are used to to being put on the spot i'm pretty sure uh so with that being said steve kenyon would you like to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic sure thanks amber um yeah pretty excited about having steve campbell here um i'm a longtime follower of uh, gerald fry which uh, Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of the predecessor or you, you, you're taking over some of his work. And, and what I hear is actually expanding on it quite a bit too. So that's a, a great thing. Um, Gerald actually was one of my mentors, one of the most down to earth, honest, easy to talk to kind of guy that I've I ever met. And as a presenter, he was very humble and very straightforward. I really appreciated that about uh, uh, Gerald. Um, I spoke with him at numerous different conferences and I, I took his school. I don't know when it was back in 2005. I had the, the privilege of uh, we had a private school at a ranch in British Columbia. And it just so happened that there was a terrible blizzard out there that weekend. So Gerald made it up and there was only three family, uh, three farms that made it to this school. Uh, we stayed in these little cabins out on this ranch and we sat around the fire every night and, and just chit chatted. I was, I'm so fortunate to have been able to do that, you know, sit around a campfire and just chit chat with Gerald Fry. That was a highlight of my career right there. So I, uh, used to had a herd back then that I, uh, used some of Gerald's uh, genetics. I b- brought in uh, Rotokawa 688, and we were breeding with some of those Red Devons. We crossed it with the cousin or the brother or whatever it was. I can't remember the number, 933 or something. And we got to the F2 generation, and then the guy that I was working with sold all those cows. Uh, so I never got to continue on that, and that kind of stopped me. So uh, big fan. I haven't been involved in it in uh, you know a number of years now, but I'm still a very big fan and a uh, uh, Fond memories, definitely, of Gerald Fry and, and the time I got to spend with him. So, uh, yeah, I guess I was supposed to introduce myself, but uh, <laughs> Steve Kenyon, uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. I was very excited to be a part of this and uh, just just grateful to, to have Steve Campbell come join us here tonight. So uh, tonight's topic is, uh, I think Amber called it, what's in your genes? So we're going to look at genetics and epigenetics and anything else in between and, uh, you know, upside down. And if anybody notices, I've got my... Uh, a picture of my donkey in the background because I think he's got the best genetics on my ranch because uh, he's 
bulletproof. He never gets sick. We never have to treat him. He, he's just always, always uh, healthy and happy and, and doing well. And he's over 40 years old. So uh, he's got some pretty good genetics in him, I think. So, so Steve, uh, I know you're on the road here tonight. Thank you very much for coming in. And uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of an intro and a little bit of a, you know, background about you, and then we'll kick into some question and answers from, from everybody on the, on the call here tonight. Well, thank you, uh, Steve and Amber, for inviting me. I can tell Gerald Price stories as well, but Gerald was a very large part of my initial move out of conventional ranching into regenerative grass finished is what I wound up getting into. And I remember when I first started talking to Gerald about this, he said, you're going to have to eat this. And I go, what do you mean? And he, he said, well, you're going to have to live it and breathe it and, and study it and observe it. You know, it's just going to have to be your your total focus if you really want to learn it and understand it. And uh, so he was a pretty good motivator along with everything else that he did. Kind of a, a couple of things. I used to give a talk I called Whirls, Swirls, Curls, and it was about glandular function and uh, butter fat and those kinds of things. One time I was, well, virtually every time I gave the talk, I had a, a styrofoam cup or something in my hand. Well, one time I had a red solo cup in my hand. I'm like, this is the name this talk needs to be. Everything about the cow is getting bigger as you go back. Sex hormones shut off, long bone growth. Am I getting too deep here or is this uh, you wanted to as a primer? Oh, no, go for it. Okay. So sex hormones shut off long bone growth. The taller an animal is in any breed, the fewer sex hormones they're producing. Estrogen shuts it off in the front end of the cow first. So the cows that look like they're walking downhill, everything else about the cow being equal, the ones that look like they're walking downhill are more fertile than those, those that look like they're walking level. And conversely, testosterone shuts off long bone growth in the back end of the bull first. So he should look like he's walking uphill if he's really fertile. And that's probably not quite the right way to say that. I'm making a lot of generalizations. Ken Redmond from Sydney, Montana, linear measured more cattle than anybody alive. Three commonalities with old cows. He took 9,500 head all out of one breed anywhere from Mexico to Canada. Three commonalities with old cows in any of those environments. Old cows, cows that had 10 or 11 calves in a row without skipping. They had a bigger belly than the herd average. So that bottom line was sloping down as you went to the back. So. It's sloping up as you go back because she's got a lot of estrogen. It's sloping down because she could eat enough for three. Number two was a wider butt than the herd average, which is calving ease and fleshing ability. And number three, and the one that became the very most important at the very end, was the slope down from hooks to pins. A lot of the cattle I see these days have a raised tail process. Gerald called that the grow bone. I now call that the anti-fertility 
bone, because if you call it the grow bone, people are thinking, oh, we need some of that. It's kind of water off the duck's back. But if you've got that tail process jumping up behind the hook bones, that's an indicator of growth, which is the opposite of fertility. Growth and fertility are on opposite ends of the teeter-totter. And switching to the other side of the equation, the epigenetic side, kind of the main first thing to say is Zach Bush says that 6% of disease is genetic, 94% of disease is epigenetic. And speaking about a cow, the air, the water, the grass, the minerals, stockmanship, the weather, everything but what got put together at the point of conception, that's 94% of how it turns out. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, some, some of the things that uh, I remember from, from Gerald back then, uh, uh, the, the swirls you talked about in your, your talk about the swirls, the swirls on the forehead and the swirls on the, on the you know, the, the top line down the, the back, uh, all sorts of different indicators visually that you can look at an animal and you can pretty comfortably come up with some non-visual aspects of them. Can you uh, run through a couple or a few more of those for me? When I go to someone's herd, the first thing I want to that draws my attention is a is a shiny hair coat, a uniform hair coat. This time of year would be that velveteen rabbit look they've started to, uh, especially in Canada, frizz out with their winter hair coat. The uh, the cows that tend to shed the earliest in the spring tend to be the ones that start frizzing out the earliest in the fall. And those tend to be your most fertile animals. So the pituitary, that's the one, the whorl in the center of the forehead, and the testes and the ovaries are all developed at the same time in utero. And we're looking for a star, the hair going 360 degrees. Everyone on the call may or may not know about Temple Grandin's study where they looked at slidiness depending on how high or how low on the face that was. If you've got animals that are the grass type, that's a lot less. It doesn't make near as direct of a correlation to flightiness if you've got animals that aren't stretched out like the broccoli rubber band, okay? But if you've got that, that pineal whorl, if it's got a scar, if you've got an inch or two inches long part in the face there, instead of a star where the hair is 360 degrees, that cow or that bull is telling you, I've got built in reproductive challenges. Does someone have a question on that? I have a question. What oh. about double whirls under the eyes? They, that probably does say something. I haven't seen enough of it to make having two or having no whorl at all. Those are both to me kind of a non-event. They're they're it it isn't saying anything bad and it isn't saying anything really good that I know at this point in my career. The the one that I know is there's a 10% or greater diminishment of 
motility in the sperm cells of the bulls that have the star versus the star at any given level of fertility. I'm sorry, that's a little bit vague, but you could have a bull that tested 85 that had a star. That same bull without a star might test at 95% motility. It's if you see a star, you're breeding in lower fertility. I guess that's what I want to say. But maybe if you guys are okay with that, we'll get rolling on questions. Etienne was up first. And so if anyone else has questions, please just put them in chat and we'll get to them in order. And we'll be asking you to unmute your mic at that time. So I'm getting very close to the period of the year. I have to choose my my rams out of my this year's ram lamb crop. And um, I'm planning to lamb early June, so I have to pick him out by January 1st at the latest. And so far, I've been looking at um, who's walking uphill and who's got the water shouldered in the bus. But I'm wondering just how much does what you talk about with cattle transfer to sheep and other animals if it's uh, full across the board type of thing or if it's just certain generic things. Like I've been looking at my sheep guard dogs actually and i can recognize my male is walking at least an inch higher on the ground at a year and a half of age now which i guess now i'm kind of spotting trying to see if i can notice those kind of things and everything and i've noticed it in some deer too so i'm wondering just how wide across the board is it and also if there's other things you recommend that i look at just out in the from the pasture uh, excellent question and excellent observations 90 percent of of all of this would go uh, to uh, all, all virtually every other species, okay? Um, whether you're talking uh, cattle or sheep or goats, all of the same rules apply. The front end of the bull is wider. You want those uh, shoulders wide on the front end. Uh, the, the back end of the U is wider. Walking uphill, Every once in a while, you'll find a bull, sorry, switching back to cattle, that's walking uphill at two years of age. Typically, if they're going to walk uphill, it will be by three sheep mature faster than bovines. So if you're seeing them walking uphill, that's excellent. There's a book called Herd Bull Fertility by James Grayson. And... Uh, the length of the testicle is more important than the circumference anymore. All we measure is the circumference on the cattle. Well, similarly, on, on a ram, the length is more important than the circumference. If you have a room that's 10 foot square in an eight foot ceiling, we can compute the volume. But if the ceiling's 12 foot tall, we just added 50% to the volume. And then, well, like in the in the bull calves, if they're out there following the uh, the bulls when they're in with the with the cows, they get a star. If they've got a low note to their voice, they get a star. If they're uh, always rubbing their hair off of their pole, they get a star. They're getting libido early in life. It feels like I didn't quite get to the end of everything you asked there. Uh, yep, yep. I'm pretty sure that covers it everything. So yeah, I was more looking for the confirmation that 
those tends to span across to sheep and pretty much all other mammals that we might be dealing with here. Okay, Chief Kenyon, did you have something you wanted to add there or observation? Yeah, no, I'm not much of a sheep guy, so I'm uh, I'm here to learn more tonight than to talk. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. I might uh, add in a few tidbits here and there, but uh, no, I appreciate that. Uh, we got another question, Amber? We do. I think this might be a quick one, but Lynn Powell, you had a question. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's like a PDF or a book that would go over these traits, like a little bit easier to reference back to than a, a full-length podcast. That is a very good question that I have been asked a lot of times. And, and people keep saying, you should write a book, <laughs> which I would need a lot of pictures. You know, you, you can go online and find a PDF of the Bonsma Lectures. And I would highly recommend that book. It's going to give you probably half of what Gerald learned, passed down, and I learned on my own and trying to pass down to other people. Mm-hmm. But uh, Bons, Bonsma Lectures, and it's uh, available online, a PDF of that. Oh, golly, the best book. And again, this is online and you can get a PDF or if you've got five or six or $700 laying around, you can own your own copy. <laughs> but Factors Affecting Calf Crop. It's, it doesn't actually go to your question. But if you already know something about a cow, that is absolutely the best book I've ever read. And uh, if you don't live in Florida, start reading in chapter six, or you're going to think I'm crazy. No, but I mean, like your microphone. Factors yeah. affecting calf crop. There are 14 or 15 different contributors bonds money in there a couple of times this next book is going to sound a little funny but 80 percent of it applies to beef cattle and uh, it's the m-i-l-c-h the milch cow in england written in 1944 by e-r cochran c-o-c-h R-A-N-E. That that last book, The Milch Cow in England, Gerald read that, called me up and said, I think this book is better than Man Must Measure by Ian Bondsman. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess those three books, if you wanted just three on the, well, and, and I would throw in there, Drayson, uh, James Drayson wrote a book called uh, Herd bull fertility, which is basically the, the, the male side of the equation. Yeah. Uh, the th- things to look for. I think it's page 120 to 125 are kind of the meat and potatoes of that book. But there are mm-hmm. a lot of things you can look at. Uh, secondary sex traits that tell you whether an animal is fertile or not. Yeah. I remember reading this one book, uh, what is it called? Uh, Grass-Fed Cattle by Julius Rochelle. I think it was that one. And they said, basically, when you're looking for a bull, you're looking for one that's like a guy on a Harlequin romance cover. (laughs) Wide shoulders, narrow hips, a big beard. (laughs) Uh, It made me laugh. Well, uh, 
He's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a very good book, by the way. It was probably written 15 years ago, and it is still a very good book. I was I was quite impressed, and you know, this is my opinion and how right he got virtually everything in that book early on. Yeah. Are you guys talking about the Harlequin Romance book now, or? <laughs> you got us. <laughs> uh, Steve, I was going to add, um, Gerald Fry's book was Bovine Engineering, was it not? No, no uh, Reproduction and Animal Health. Charles Walters actually wrote it. You can get it through Acres USA. Because I had Gerald's book and somebody borrowed it and then I never got it back. So I don't know. I can't remember the name of it. but yeah, Reproduction and Animal Health. I just said, I think that answers my question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next up, we have Larry Holcomb. Larry, are you ready to go? So just for everybody to know, I will be putting those and I'm going to Steve Campbell. I'm going to harass you after for some, some comments on books and stuff. And then we can put them in the show notes for anyone that's listening on podcast. So Larry, go ahead. Steve, just, Go through the star and the swirl on the head again, just briefly, and then uh, need comments on line breeding. Okay, good. When I say a star, think about a daisy. Okay. And the the petals go out 360 degrees. That is what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it needs to be right exactly between the eyes. Well, uh, if she's got a star, or she has nothing on her face, I'm still looking at the rest of the animal. If she's got a scar, I'm kind of scratching my head. She might have some other things that are so good. It's like, well, I've got to try her, but I'm certainly not going to keep a bull. But a star is not as good as a swirl, correct? Uh, a star is on, on, on the pineal, in the middle of her forehead, okay. or right between her eyes. You want that daisy look where the the hair is going 360 degrees. That's the best thing. The worst thing is the water buffalo look. The hair parted right down the middle of the face. Oh, okay. Thanks. Okay. What's your thoughts on line breeding? breeding? I uh, had two heifers. I don't breed my cows until they're 15 months old heifers. And I had two that calved at 14 months. And uh, they won't happen again because I I know which shot to give them now. (laughs) But they were... Heifers were bred back by their father and had nice calves, but I'm thinking about breeding half brother to half sister. That's my main question. Line breeding, it's not for everybody. There, I could I could make a case where everybody could go to three quarters, and then you better step back and take a look at what you're doing. But I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. So if you're line breeding. They say that the very best matings are grandfather, granddaughter, uncle, niece, and half-brother, half-sister. You need to have a herd where there are not a lot of problems to begin with, uh, or you're going to be, unless you're a ruthless puller or very good at selection, you could cement in some negative things you don't want in your herd. So let's say you went and found the bull, the one that, Larry, I came to your place and we went through your cows and we said, well, here's your 50 best cows and 
what they need is this bull right here. Okay. And you you breed those 50 into that bull. And, you know, my goal for you is to start creating your own bulls at the end of what I'm about to say. But you you breed this to your, your 50 best cows, and now you've got 25 heifers. Okay. If you want to find out whether you chose the right bull, someone who had done years of thoughtful breeding, making sure there were no teats on the neck of the scrotum and that he dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and he'd been doing this for 25 or 30 years, or it was a bull where the stars finally aligned on somebody's place and they had the bull that looked, oh, wow. The, both of those bulls could look the same the day you bought them, but they're drastically different on how true they they tend to reproduce on the inside. So you breed him right back to 25 daughters. And you get 22 daughters that are even better yet. Great. That, that was the bull you were looking for. Get rid of those three that didn't turn out good and their mothers. Yes. That, that there was the problem versus you got eight or 10 that were better and the other 15 or 17 weren't were, you're not that is not the bull to line breed with you you will just pull your hair out because it just you're, you're having to throw away so many animals well if, if you don't go to a place that has done what i call years of thoughtful breeding that's when you're going to get in trouble trying to line breed yeah, I understand it, but uh, it's uh, I've got a half brother to my heifers. It's just he's just pretty. Everybody thinks their bulls are prettiest, and I disagree with ninety percent of them, including myself sometimes. But uh, I've got one. It's just uh, ex- exceptional that I was thinking about, and I'm pleased with my cow. My herd's small. I have South Pole, which is common in the South, but uh, I'm pleased with all my cows. But I just thought about line breeding one time, half brother, half sister, uh, and just see how it goes. Uh, I kind of kind of scared to kind of scared to do father daughter. Uh, I highly recommend it. Worst thing that could happen is those two heifers or whatever it is that you're going to breed, they you don't get what you're looking for, and next yes. year you breed to something else. But when you get exceptional ones, I I would try it. But you know, then you really need to be picky when you start breeding close. As a function of nature, the animals are going to get smaller. You're going to start putting the genie back in the bottle. When you crossbreed or outcross, you get this puff up and out in in volume from that crossbreeding, the hybrid figure, the the outcrossing. As you go back to three quarters, we're putting the genie back in the bottle. They're going to get a little smaller, but they'll get more refined dust, shed earlier, finer bones, more butter fat indicators, all of that sort of thing. But I don't mind buying good bulls. I buy registered bulls, and but this is just one I'm going to use on a few heifers to see. Because my daddy always said a, a, a bull was worth five to six cows, and that's what I put into the thought of how much a bull should be. And it's held true for years. You know what I mean? So I don't mind paying for a good bull, but I just want to try. The half brother, half sister. I was just going to add a little bit to that, Larry. I, I think it's important that we understand, uh, like Steve's point, you, you've got to kind of know what you're doing and you've got to know where to select them out. I mean, if uh, anybody on the call, if you've ever heard of the, the term called impressive syndrome, 
Hey, that mm-hmm. was a, a racing horse many, many years ago that it was supposedly the best racing horse ever. And they uh, did semen collection and they, you know, they, they re distribute out this, this wonderful genetics to so many different places. It was thousands and thousands of offspring off this one horse that was so wonderful. And all of a sudden these, the offspring started dying of a liver disease or something. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say I've got this hundred percent right, but basically after, you know, thousands and thousands of these offspring were born to this, this wonderful horse, they found out, no, there was something majorly wrong with them. But now that genetics is spread out around so many places. So we do have to be careful in the long run about impressive syndrome. It's happened in chickens. It's happened in pigs. It's happened in all sorts of different types of livestock that we, we think we've got the, the winning ticket and, you know, something's missed. There's so many different little, you know, so many genes in there that, uh, that don't necessarily show up right away. So we do have to be careful about it. Um, uh, Gerald Fry was very big on, I remember him telling a story about, uh, the Bible and how, how the line breeding went down the Bible to make the perfect specimen of, uh, of Mary. It was quite a long, intricate story he had on that too. So we, we have to be careful when we're doing it is all I'm saying. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Hey, Steve, I'm still, I'm still doing uh, brine. I love my salt brine. I think somebody's got a question about that in a little while. Perfect. Thanks, Excellent. Larry. And thanks, Steve and Steve. Um, next up, we have True North. Are you guys ready to go? Are you ready to go? I was just asking uh, if there are cattle breeds that are better for gaining weight on just grass, not the feedlot bred beasts, and what would you recommend? And if you can select within a herd the ones that uh, might be best for this trait. A very good question. To be in an all forage environment, you're going to want animals that are frame five or lower or shorter, I guess I should say. Uh, the growthier they are, the harder it is to get enough nutrition in just all grass. Uh, while I'm right there, Fred Provenza in his book, Nourishment, talks about what mom eats. And if all mom had was grass, Junior is going to do pretty good on all grass. But if mom got grain, Junior is going to need grain to live up to his potential. Anyway, specific breeds that do the best on all grass, the more the British breeds tend to do better. But that doesn't mean you can't find good ones in the continental breeds. So for an all-grass situation, the hardest thing to find is glandular function. That 40-year-old, I guess, it's a, is it a mule behind you, Steve Kenyon? Anyway, finding an animal that is adapted to its environment is, is the hardest thing to find. So that shiny one, the early shedder or the one that's frizzing out, uniform velveteen rabbit book. But that that turning that red solo cup cow on its side and on the cow her head is on the little end and her rump is on the big end that that's the shape that we're looking for for an all forage animal and then butterfat indicators of course if she's already a cow a bald udder now there's going to be more hair on an udder in canada than there is at the mexican border but 
the cows with the least hair on their udder in your environment, everything else being equal, would be the ones giving the most butterfat. And the number two indicator is a loose hide, which is evidenced by vertical folds in the hide. The more vertical folds there are, and the further back they go, the looser the hide. If you find vertical folds from the vulva down to the udder on a calf, on a heifer you're getting ready to breed, or on a cow, those almost always either turn into good cows or are good cow. Did you get enough there? Or is there something that spurred another question? Uh, that's interesting. So um, breeds like the speckled park is, a, I'm trying to think of British breeds. Well, uh, Black Angus, Red Angus, Shorthorn, uh, you know, uh -huh. Scottish Highlander. Uh, yeah, just, but uh, speckled park, maybe the question I need to ask is, what are you doing with the offspring of these cows that you own? We, uh, we don't have a cow-calf operation. I buy yearlings in the spring and I want to raise them on grass and sell them as grass-raised, grass-finished beef. Um, so uh, apparently, you know, some uh, animals do much better on just grass than others. We have pretty, pretty nice forage. Yeah, I can imagine. So now we're going to dive off into a different direction. Uh, I should have asked that question, I guess, before the other. But if you can find animals where someone else has been trying to raise grass-type animals and they have been nourishing them well in utero and at mom side, they're clean and mineral rich. Well, those animals are going to be healthier and gait faster. And fine cannon bones, if you're looking for tender meat, if you want them coming back for another steak, you want really small cannon bones from the knee down, up front and in the back, but mainly up front. Huh. But I guess the, where I really want to go right now is the wider and the deeper they are up front, the higher the meat to bone ratio. You've got a 700-pound carcass. A 50% meat-to-bone ratio is 350 pounds of meat. 60% uh, is 420. A uh, 70% is 490 pounds of meat off of that same 700-pound carcass. Well, for each inch, the heart girth, you, you're taking a tape measure and measure right behind the front legs. For each inch, that number is greater than you measured from the pin bone in the back by the tail to the pole of the animal. It's 37 more pounds of red meat. And if you were feeding grain, it would be 37 fewer pounds of grain to put on those 37 extra pounds. You probably have a question about what I just said. Yeah, I'm not sure I got that quite straight. You measure from the pin bones to the pole. Yes. And then you, so you would compare different lengths between animals and it's better if it's longer? No, 
No. no. Uh, you you measure you measure right behind the front legs, clear around their 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 circumference, the girth. Yes. Okay. And if that's seventy five, and the top line is seventy four, we just gained thirty seven pounds of red meat. If the if the top line seventy four and the heart girth is third seventy three, we just lost thirty seven pounds of red meat. Okay. I've got this straight now. Yeah, that's the linear measuring kicking in there, right? Uh, right. The, the yeah. top line to heart girth is one of the ratios that they always compare. Yes. And and right there, I was using it for meat. If you were using linear measurement to select bulls, it would be how much bigger the heart girth was than the top line. Right. If you were using linear measurement to sell to pick cows, it's how much bigger the flank is than the top line. Now we're back to that Harlequin romance novel. Thank you. Okay, I got a little bit to add to that. If you're going to be selecting animals, like Steve said, depending what your, your goal is, your, your very first question was which breeds are better. And I've found over the years, I've had probably over a hundred different herds that I've managed because I'm a custom operator. I bring in different people's herds and I talk to different people. So just the, the variety of different people that I've had come in. And I've found that there's as much variation within a breed as there is between breeds, right? You can have a 2,300 pound Angus cow and you can have a 700 pound Angus cow, right? They're, they're the, in my opinion, that's a different breed. Those are different animals. So even if they look the same, uh, unless you get right down to the, the the bare bones of it, they can be completely different when they're, you're talking about gains. I had a an Angus herd come in. I'm not, you know, promoting one breed here by any means. Like I said, there, there's there's good animals in all the breeds. Uh, but I had an Angus herd come in one time. They came from BC. They were they were treated and selected really tough, right? This was a strong herd. Like they, they, they weren't cutting it out there because the terrain was hard and the conditions were harsh. And so they showed up at my place fairly skinny. And I actually was swath grazing a pea straw field that year. So a very low quality feed. I put those animals on that pea straw and they started to gain weight, right? They, they did well on it. I'm like, wow, like, I don't know how they, you know, what, what the conditions where they were at, but they did really well. And we were feeding really cheap. So the, the owner was very excited and happy that I could feed so cheap. And he decided to buy some more animals. So he bought a, another Angus herd from a local breeder out here. And it was actually a purebred herd. And I actually knew a little bit of history about that herd. I'd had them once before. And they were heavy, heavy grain feeders, right? So these Angus animals, they, they got grain all the time, like summer, winter, and lots of it. And I kind of warned him about that, but he still bought them. And trying to feed those two herds together was a disaster because the the new herd just about died when I when I, you know tried to feed them the same as the other herd because they're they could gain so much more. They needed you know ten pounds of grain a day just to survive, and that's just by selecting right for for thirty years they've developed that herd selecting by hammering the grain at them. So I always am very leery about advising someone you know this breed is better than that breed because there is so much difference within a breed. So I would be more cautious or cautioning you to look for, you know, a desirable breed, like Steve said, maybe a British breed. They're, they're known for that a little bit, but also how they've been raised and selected over the last 20 years. That that's a big deal. 
I've seen it multiple times had, you know, multiple herds come in one year. We had a herd come in that they hadn't used any chemicals or any grain for 25 years uh, and put them in with a herd that uh, was just, you know, traditional commercial herd. And there was such a difference in the end. We ended up getting lice that year and, and the herd that hadn't, hadn't been treated, but they've been selected. Well, never had a patch of hair missing, right? It's just amazing. They're the exact same color, same shape, like just visually looking at them. They were the same one herd, but once you separated them out at the end of the year, you could sure tell the difference between the two herds. The funny thing was with that one is through the winter, we were watching them out there and we're like, yeah, you know, they're overall looking okay. They're looking pretty good. They're doing, doing well enough. And yeah, it wasn't until they were separated that we actually saw the big difference between the two. So does that answer your question? Um, I've just uh, got a new one here. We have a few family milk cows and uh, the advice on raising a calf uh, is that you have to give them grain in order to develop the rumen properly. And I've always thought this was a little weird because, um, you know, cows obviously haven't evolved to need to eat grain when they're little. Is that like an epigenetic thing or is it even true that you, if you don't give your calves grain, they will not develop a proper rumen? I'm happy to talk, but Steve... Kenyon, maybe you ought to say something first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, I'm, I, I'm a little leery of that one because it's not natural. However, you look at the dairy industry, the genetics has completely changed from na- what nature had. Right? We've we've changed and manipulated that, those genetics so much that I don't. You know, it's pretty hard probably to find a a dairy animal that, uh, you know, hasn't been pounded grain all its life in, in most traditional. So depends again, where you got those animals from. If it's a, a herd that's been, you know, grain, 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 grain for 30 years, the genetics, maybe they're not, they can't uh, develop properly because that's what they've been selected for, for many, many years. Whereas if you can find a, you know, a grass fed herd, somewhere that that's what they've been doing for years, then no, I would say you shouldn't, you shouldn't need any grain for the rumen to develop. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our maker created the rumen in the perfect design. The only way it's messed up is because we've messed it up. Okay. Thanks. So I kind of laughed out loud as you were asking your question. So what I would like to do is just tell a story. Um, I I get, well, I got to back up. No, we don't need the grain. But the story I want to tell, there's a fellow that grazes the Arizona Strip. So it's that part of Arizona north of the Grand Canyon. You can't get there from Phoenix without going into Nevada and then into Utah. All right. He runs 1,000 cows on 250,000 acres. It takes 250 acres for one cow to make a living. He called me up a few years ago at the end of August and said, I normally have to wean these calves off of these first calf heifers at three months of age to get them to breed back, but they're not losing body condition this year like they normally do. So I asked him, well, did you change the mineral? Did you get more than your normal four inches of rain? It was at different bowls. Everything was no. And finally, I said, how long did you leave those calves on their mother?" And he thought for about 10 seconds and he said, you know, that was that first year I tried that 10 month weaning. 
I said, that was kind of a leap of faith, wasn't it? And he said, yes. Probably three years later, he told me, he said, of all the things I've tried out here on the Arizona Strip, he said, this is the most profitable thing I've ever done. You could not pay me $100 to wean these replacement heifers before 10 months of age. They just flat turn into cows. What you're doing by doing that is developing the villi in the rumen with forage and the butterfat that was in the milk. Back to Fred Provenza. If you feed mom grain during gestation of junior, junior is going to need grain. So would why not uh, would ADM or Cargill not tell you that you're going to have to feed grain to these dairy calves because they want to make sure that those animals as dairy cows will need grain. Thanks, guys. So I hope that answers your question, True North. But yes, thanks. That was very good. And I'm a big fan of Fred Provenza. I'm a wildlife biologist myself, and he's one of the best wild bio wildlife biologists ever. So let me throw one more thing kind of at that. So the dairy, the you know, you're taking away some milk from uh, from production if you're going to leave these calves on longer. If you're if you are doing milk replacer, I think Larry said he was enjoying making the mineral water. I would highly recommend half of the water that goes into the milk replacer being mineral water. You're you're feeding them electrolytes basically, and the other thing is a tablespoon of coconut oil oh my gosh it's like putting part of a stick of butter in there it's calves do phenomenally well if you've got a dairy and you could take some of your older milk and make kefir or kefir and add some of that to your milk replacer calves do phenomenally well you're putting probiotics in there you will develop the villi in the rumen way better than you ever possibly could with grain. We have a, an old cow who uh, never gets pregnant anymore, and she raises our calves for us. So they are on Jersey milk as long as they wish to nurse. And, you know, they, they always look fantastic. You know, I've been very curious about this recommendation to, to give them grain. I can't really see that they need anything. If you want long-term dairy cows, cows that live a number of years, I would highly recommend not feeding the grain to try to get the calf developed. Okay. So let me, let me go one more place there. Probably 11, 12 years ago, uh, University of Wisconsin, they had uh, nine or 10 years worth of data where they'd taken these dairy heifer calves off the bottle and they either went to a TMR, total mixed ration with grain, or an all forage diet. And then they calved at two years of age. I was happy to see it wasn't a weight that they calved at two years of age. The dairy heifers that had not gotten any grain gave 2,000 more pounds of milk per lactation than those who had put fat in their udder during development with the TMR. They were all on a TMR as soon as they calved, 
but but those that had not put fat in their udder with grain gave 2,000 more pounds of milk per lactation. That's impressive. It was to me. That's why I remembered it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, next up, we have Clay Connery. Clay, are you ready to go? I'm ready. So I, I wanted to clear something up, Steve uh, Campbell. You've been talking about the star versus the scar, right? That would be uh, S-T-A-R, Sierra Tango Alpha Romeo versus S-C-A-R, Sierra Charlie Alpha Romeo. Is that a good distinction to make there between the swirls that we're looking at there on the forehead? Yes, Clay, and hello. I uh, the, What we're looking for is the daisy. We're not looking for the water buffalo look. Right. The elongated scar scar is, is a problem. Yes, sir. Right. And then I had a second question, and that was that it, it seems that most sheep that I've seen fit the red solo cup type better than many cows I've seen. Is that because the sheep have been less affected by the space race than the cattle have? Yes. Short answer is yes. They, uh, I'll just leave it right there yes we we tried to do stuff with cattle that we didn't try to do with the sheep kind of had to make more common sense with the sheep and it was it was hard to convince the peruvian herders that that what the show ring thought was what they needed because they, they knew better yeah if they're not running them with a herder most of the operations i've been exposed to their sheep are an afterthought and so they're not getting all of the intensive pouring over in the breeding catalog and the EPDs that the, that the cattle maybe are, but maybe that's just a function of the fact that there aren't many sheep left in this, in this part of the world, not near as many as there were 50 years ago, but anyways, thank you for your time tonight, Steve. It's been very good. I'll uh, put your mind at ease clay too, that uh, we've almost screwed up the cattle genetics as much as the horses and the dogs. Uh, we're getting close, so the sheep are just that much farther behind. They'll, they'll catch up. We'll screw it up just as bad. <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened to sheep was the prices of the last three years because everybody wanted to get into sheep, and then we start doing the things that we've done with the cattle over the last 50 years. <laughs> you guys better be careful. You're starting to sound like grumpy old farmers. <laughs> I'm calling you out on it. This is the day before Thanksgiving. We'll try to clean up our act. <laughs> be grateful. Be grateful. Come on now. Um, next up is Etienne. Etienne, are you ready to go? So before I get to my question, I forgot one super important part of my previous question. So I hate to pony back and hog your time, but I got to ask this. So when I got into sheep, I couldn't find anybody around that raises sheep the way I want to raise them. So what I did was bought 40 ewes, 10 from a producer that was very close to what I wanted, but not quite there. And the balance from a producer that was behind, but still doing better than the average. And I bred them to a lamb that was partner with the flock that was doing pretty close to what I wanted. So a good base start, in my opinion. So I lambed those out, sold the... 30 that I wasn't a super fan of and kept their lamb used to replace him. 
So I've got a flock of about 50 lamb is what I'm getting. Personally, I'm of the opinion that I don't know enough about sheep to start selecting criterias. I think that applies to most people breeding, but easily applies to me. So what I'm kind of doing is just letting nature run its course on a closed flock, like maybe not permanent, permanently closed, but I've been selecting for my flock because I can't find anybody else who's selecting for what I'm selecting for. And um, what I'm wondering from you is, in your opinion, am I headed to a train wreck or do I have a chance of making this work since I can't find anybody else who seems to be as harsh, I suppose, on their sheep as I've been trying to develop something that fits my environment? AT and I, I admire your story for two or three reasons. Um, you picked a superior ram lamb. You bred those and you now in the offspring have what Fred Provenza calls home field advantage in the offspring. They were, they were bred and born on your place. They're designed to eat what's at your place, all right? So anytime you move animals, there's a cost to doing that. Side note, um, Michener, <laughs> when the... Um, when the British got to Australia, they found uh, all these rabbits. So they they decided they wanted some uh, greyhounds to, to chase the rabbits. So they brought some over on one of the sailing ships. And those dogs would run out of air before they could catch the rabbits. But the first set of puppies that were bred in utero and born in Australia they could go catch them, no problem. They had the home field advantage. You got rid of the 30 head of ewes that were farther away from what you wanted. And now you're letting mother nature take her course with those, those 10 plus all the others that have the home field advantage. I couldn't have told you a better way to start out than what you decided to do. I, I think that that's awesome. Well, in part, you did tell me what to do. You and Fred Provenza's book, Nourishment, and Greg Judy are the reason I'm doing this. So thank you for that. Oh. <laughs> you didn't tell me personally, but through all the podcasts you, you do, <laughs> that's kind of took that advice and ran with it. Um, so now I'm going to get to my real question that's a bit less selfish and might help other people. Um, have you seen producers save money uh, by replacing their mineral with your saltwater brine? Or is it just a more efficient way to deliver the mineral to the animals? And do you know a Canadian source to replace the Redmond conditioner? So from a Canadian source product and company, so I can save the okay. whole ship of shipping up conditioner. So the, the conditioner is not the salt. The conditioner is the detox. So we're making yep. the mineral water out of sea salt. The short answer is yes on the mineral water. And uh, the reason I say that, I recommend that whatever you're doing now, unless you're just in a wreck, whatever you're doing now, continue to do that. And if you can make mineral water, and I'll go into that in a little bit, how to make it. If you can make mineral water, you're going to get your cattle healthier than they currently are. And why am I so confident that I can say that? Well, I've seen it a bunch of places, but why does it work? 
So right after World War II, the American Navy went around the world, multiple samples of every salt body of water. It's always 92 minerals. They're always in exactly the same balance. And that balance is exactly the same as our blood, except for, I believe it's iron and magnesium are reversed. So Dr. Maynard Murray took a dog, took 90% of the blood out, put seawater in there and the dog lived. Well, if we're making mineral water correctly, that's the closest thing we can have to a mammal's blood. And it takes 120 days to change out all the red blood cells. If we're changing them out with basically the same minerals that should be in perfect blood, how can this be a bad thing? Yeah, that's great. And are you finding that people that do make the change are saving money compared to their old things? Or is it just a more efficient way to bring the, the minerals to the animal? Thank you for following up. No, they do save money. The, the, I call this uh, the mineral water, the thinking man's kelp. It's the same minerals. They're just not attached to a carbon atom. In the mineral box, they're about 20% bioavailable attached to a carbon atom through your grass. They're 90% bioavailable. Well, in the mineral water, you take out all the imbalance, whether you're using Redmond or Kansas or C90, that's all in the bottom of your tea bag. You've just got 92 minerals in nature's balance. They will consume less of whatever mineral you're on if you have access to that mineral water. And I made a, uh, a, a YouTube video here, oh, I don't know, back in April or early May. And I think if you just Googled YouTube mineral water, Steve Campbell. Um, it's about two minutes long. The only thing I wish that I had said different, I was being very particular about where to put it and about how to take the bag out. But I used the word imbalanced which sounds too much like imbalance i mean like clay uh we've got one letter different in these two words uh anyway i wish that i had said out of balance that cloud coming out of the bag is out of balance the minerals but that is a very good description about how to make the mineral water in that instance they were using two tanks if you want to do this in Canada in the winter and you've got a sizable enough tank, you've got one tank, it's not metal and it has a float. You got a hundred gallons, you got a 300 gallon tank. Well, now we've got an ice problem and I get that, but bear with me. If on Monday you put your tea bag in and Tuesday you took it out, Wednesday you put it in and Thursday you took it out. So we got mineral water Monday, fresh water Tuesday, mineral water Wednesday, fresh water Thursday. Monday, when you jerk it out of there, like you'll see in this video, and you let it all drain out, what you're looking for is a fist amount of unused granular salt. I don't care how much mush or out of balance minerals are in the bag. I'm looking for some unused salt. If, if half of what you put in there is left, you put in too much salt. And if there was nothing, no salt left, you didn't put enough salt in. And I, I hate to be that short with it. I've seen people do it wrong so many different ways. I was very specific about, you don't want the water stirring this up and you, you're you trying not 
to leave a cloud when you take the bag out. That's great. And as far as for us in the winter, like last year, I tried what um, you'd recommend to just make one for the winter and it doesn't freeze because the salt helps. And it worked for a little bit. And then our winter just got too cold. And right now my sheep are off in winter pasture where I don't have water, but they're just grazing and licking snow. So when I don't have access to a water system to make the proper bind, is giving them loose redmond salt a good a good substitute? I know they're going to consume more, but is that going to be enough, or do I need to be doing something else to replace all of the water brine? The redmond salt, typically with a cow, <laughs> you know what zip code you at? You know what's going on? I mean, I, I five or six ounces of sea salt a day, so now we're talking an ounce of salt for you. Yeah, I've well, just been giving it to them free choice in a tub. Yeah. They can go look at yeah. it whenever they want. And so that typically it's hard to get past the sodium chloride to, for them to consume enough. And you wind up having to entice. Well, I was just talking to a fellow in Ohio and he just tried uh, gluten, uh, wheat gluten. And he said the cattle love it. Well, whatever you can find that doesn't violate any of the parameters of what you're going to be doing with your the off the calves the the lambs i mean if you're in a grass-fed deal you can't feed uh, soybean meal or cracked corn or something like that cane sugar somebody in southwest wyoming found some reject flour and said man you you can put anything with that and the and the cattle will eat it well find what the what they use like, and if they consume about an ounce of sea salt a day, what they don't need will just go out the back end and we've got better grass for next year. You did not lose it. It, it just cycled through the ewe or it cycled through the cow. Okay, so just leaving him with stockpile and no enticer, I'm depriving my use of something in the long run. Well, are you depriving them? If you put Redmond salt out free choice and whatever else you were using, for a mineral, they're probably going to eat less of the, the mineral that you've been buying. All right. Hey. Now, I don't know that I have seen a U with a cadmium hope, but I've certainly seen cows with a cadmium hope. And uh, that is a slow hump from the shoulders back to the hook bones. It might rise up two or three inches. If you've got that in a cow herd, it's on basically the same company selling the, the mineral that you're buying for your use, let's just say it's Purina and, and your neighbors using Purina for their cows and their cows have cadmium humps. You probably got cadmium going into your use. Well, the first thing cadmium does is screws up an animal's ability to control internal body temperature. In the summer, they get too hot. In the winter, they stay too cold. Okay. So is there a clean way to give the extra minerals the salt wouldn't give them without getting the everyday stuff? Like I'm already struggling to find sheep mineral as a general. Trying to find a clean one was the whole point of the salt water brine. But Well, ATM, what are you doing with the lambs? What, what's happening with the lambs? Uh, they're just like you mean for the flock or what am I doing to market them? You, you, you take them to sale barn, you, you sell them to individuals. What do you do? I uh, try to direct market them for meat. Go try to find some uh, 
cane sugar and uh, add it to the sea salt. Oh, golly, I don't know. Start out at uh, one-third sea salt, or excuse me, one-third sugar and two-thirds sea salt and, and calculate. I mean, there's 800 ounces in a 50-pound bag. Calculate out how much they're consuming a day, and you'll probably be able to back off. You might be down to 10% sugar or something, and you, you'll have them at an ounce, and life would be pretty good. Uh, I didn't give it tailormadecattle.com, T-A-I-L-O-R, tailormadecattle.com, and my phone number, 208-315-4726. And my, my email is steve at tailormadecattle.com. So call me, email me. Let's get this worked out. Uh, I'm I'm offering this to everybody on the on the call here. Is you know I I just want to help people. Awesome, thanks. I'll let you move on to someone else. Perfect, thanks. Do you have anything to add there, Steve Kenyon? I'm I'm gonna let that go because I I could go on to a couple stories on that, but we've got a lot of questions. Awesome, thank you, uh, Coley. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. So yeah, I I, I was thinking about a question and and. It's interesting. Uh, you brought up Fred Provenza's book a couple times. I'm, I'm reading it. I haven't finished it, but uh, and I've also watched a lot of uh, videos of Mark Bader, the guy that started the Free Choice Enterprise for the buffet style minerals. And uh, I've talked to some people that have said you would recommend uh, uh, more of an all-in-one, like a Redmond Salt or the C90, instead of a Free Choice uh, buffet style minerals. And I'm, I'm wondering how you reconcile that because after reading what I've read in the book and, and learned so far about cows is they are very capable of picking and choosing their own nutrition. And I see it in my own uh, herd where they choose minerals that we seem to be short on. So I, I'm wondering how you reconcile the, the recommendation for an all-in-one versus a, a free choice buffet. I, I can answer that in one word and the word is China. Virtually every individual mineral coming out of China has cadmium in it, among other toxins. And I think after Mark died, I don't know this, but it wasn't working as well after Mark died as before. Most of the individual ingredients like, oh, well, this copper sulfate over here is cheaper than the stuff dad was buying. Let's use this. Well, it probably came from China. And the cadmium was binding the copper it was binding the zinc it was binding the this it was binding the that if you could get clean sources that's absolutely right all you got to do is write down what the cattle are consuming and you'll know what your soil is deficient in you you were spot on with that the problem with most of those you need to hold their feet to the fire and make them give you non-chinese versions of those individual minerals and it'll probably work like gangbusters interesting thank you and and if you want me to say it louder or put it in all capitals china <laughs> but there is no doubt where, where i think the problem lies mr kenyon yeah no go ahead i'm there's lots of questions in there i'm just sitting back enjoying listening to all this so many that i actually forgot one so, so i'm so sorry lily you're up next um, thanks. 
Uh, I guess, I mean, I have a million mineral questions, but mine was asked back when we were talking about genetics. So I don't know, I guess maybe I'll bump us back to genetics, unfortunately, but my question is more about, you've listed all these things about what to look for in selecting cows, like fertile grass efficient cows. And I heard Etienne's comment about what he's going to do. And I've heard that before with cows, like select the ones that are great, put them out maybe with your bull for 45 days. And the ones that get bred are the ones you keep. But say I don't have that ability and my bull ends up with my cows a bit longer. What are some of the things that you would look for in a heifer? Um, like you want to keep them on for nine to 10 months and not wean them if you want to keep them. So at what age can we see like the solo cup shape developing and the coat like shedding? And I mean, obviously the swirls right away, but, and the hooks to pin slope, is that like right away, um, rib angle, like wider butt, all these things, like what ages can we see them? And then like, what are the most important things that if you had to pick, would you use? Uh, good question. The day a calf is born, all right? Okay. Uh, a, a real long, narrow face. Sorry, this is going to be a real shotgun here, so bear with me. The, um, the width of the muzzle is approximately equal to the width of the pins. And the pin bones are 80 to 90% as wide as the pelvic opening. So if you've got heifer calves with narrow mouths, you're going to be pulling calves. If you've got heifer calves with really blocky steer or bull-like heads, they're not real fertile. So just proportions wise, and you don't find a lot of bull calves that, that meet this. It's... I remember when Gerald first started, he told me, he used to tell people five to 10% of the females and uh, one in a thousand bulls. And uh, 15 years in, he said it was two to 5% of the females and one in 10,000 bulls uh, was what you were really looking for, for a, a pure, true pure grass type bull. Anyway, uh, a bull's head should be half as wide as it is long. A cow's head should be twice as long as it is wide, plus one to two inches. So we don't want him, that heifer, we don't want her head too short, which is usually not something we run into, but we don't want it long and narrow. We want the, we want the shoulder blades fairly flat when they're just a calf. We want the hook bones up level with the back bone so they're kind of flat across there hook bone backbone hook bone step on the down leg pick the top leg up do we have four teeth or do we have six two extras in back more butter fat do we have a uh, something about the size of the palm of your hand around those teeth that's a lighter colored nappier looking hair probably going to turn into a bald udder even as a calf they'll have vertical folds, smaller diameter bones. But yes, as a, as a month old, as a four month old, as a seven month old, you'll see the heifer calves that are wider in the back end, taller in the back end, have a bigger belly. They can eat enough for three. Back mm -hmm. to Ken Redmond, three commonalities, a bigger belly than the herd average, 
a wider butt than the herd average and more slope from hooks to pins. When you're selecting heifers, you want a bigger butt, a wider, or I mean, excuse me, a bigger belly, a wider butt, and slope from hooks to pins. Uniform hair coat, born in the first 21 days. Sorry, that was a long list. Did I lose you anywhere in there? No, not really at all. Yeah. Okay. Basically like everything. And my main question was like, at what age does this show up? So like a lot of that you'd be seeing right at a young age. Absolutely. And uh, (laughs) your most fertile animals, unless you didn't breed them all starting at the same date, your most fertile animals are going to be the ones that calve in the first 21 days. Okay. Um, And then the solo cup shape, like... Because that's um, the sex hormone shutting off the long bone growth in the front end. That doesn't develop until more of like later on, I would assume. No, no, actually, um, let, let me put it this way. They're all going to look like they're walking downhill when they're four months of age. Or if they don't, they're, you're, they're not a one you want to keep. But by the time they get to be six and eight and 10 months of age, some of them are going to start being flat on top versus uh, others still walking downhill. Okay. I see. Okay. So the, the earlier in life, the sex hormones start showing up. Mm-hmm. So the bigger, the, the bigger, the stifle muscle bull or heifer calf. And the earlier you see that the more, fertile they are the adrenal hair whorl we're back to another star star we're back to another uh what did i use a daisy on the back somewhere hopefully in the shoulder blade area there's going to be a an area where the hair goes 360 degrees when a heifer first starts producing estrogen there'll be three four five hairs stick up in the middle of that adrenal hair whorl and they will remain standing until she stops producing estrogen. And that would be three weeks to a month after she gets pregnant. They will lay down because she's now producing progesterone to keep that corpus luteum going. Kind of getting picky now. Yeah, okay. No, that's great. And I mean, it's a lot of little things. And I mean, I'd say out of all my cows, not all of them have everything but some of them have a bit of some of it. So I guess, yeah, it'll be a matter of learning what's the most important. And So to go back and kind of sum up what's important, cows that calve early and they have good glandular function and their calves don't get sick. Right, okay. And then, and then one of those calves that's got that solo cup shape and a very uniform hair coat, you could stop right there and... If you were betting on those in Vegas, you'd make more money than the one walking uphill. And the, the, the first cow to sell is the reverse wedge. The, 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 she's walking uphill and has no guts. That's the one you, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> you, you probably won't make any money on. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. I, I'm going to add to that a little bit, Lily. I'm going to go back to the beginning of our conversation here a little bit. I think the the cover of the Harlequin romance novel, right? That that the I, I can picture the guy now, but looking back now, the woman was always wrong, right? I think we need a wider hips <laughs> on the cover, right? Isn't that what he just told us? That's what I took home. Are you saying you chose me because of wider hips? 
I never uh, said those, that. No, oh, no, no, no. I don't know. Be nice. Be nice. Thanks, Lillian. Thank you, Steve and Steve. Um, next up, Michael Klein. Are you ready to go? Yeah, if I push the right button, I am. Uh, yeah, I guess listening to, you know, we've got a small herd around grass, needless to say, and we do everything AI. So we've got lots of bulls in the tank that we end up using. We use certain bulls on certain cows. And then when we keep the, some of the calves, we're looking at trying to have a wide variety, I guess. So my biggest question is with the bulls, they don't have as much effect if they're not totally on grass when they were being raised or because as long as the cows having the calf in utero raising it on grass is that what the main part is for that calf not so much the bull being on grass let me make sure that i'm i'm understanding your question correctly are are you asking me does it or does it not make a difference in fertility of the bull or in the kind of animal that uh, that calf is going to, uh, I can't even quite ask the question the way I'm thinking of it in my mind. Are, are, are you, are, is the calf going to develop into being a good grass calf, even though the dad may not have been on a grass basis, if it's a heifer? Generally, two or three things generally. If the bull checks all the right boxes. Now, oh my gosh. I did a podcast with Clay. I think it's 233 about a, a bull wish list. Okay. Now, if you're feeding a bull grain, you're going to have less motility and more abnorms. So he's going to be less fertile. Uh, you're going to have less semen overall. All right. So we're going to get fewer cows pregnant with this bull we've been feeding grain to. But if we do get that cow pregnant and she's a good cow, Gerald Fry told me this early on, a good cow can recreate herself in her daughters with a good bull. It takes a really good bull for her to create better daughters or better sons. Well, most people that have been feeding grain to bulls are feeding grain because their genetics aren't strong enough to do it all on grass. So if we're buying bulls that did get grain, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in raising an all forage animal, but maybe that's the best that we can do right now. I don't know that I answered your question. Grain yeah. is not good for fertility of either the bull or the cow. The dairy deal where they were putting fat in the udder with the TMR, well, if you're feeding a bull grain, you're putting fat in the scrotum, everything's warmer, more abnorms, there's less volume of semen, and there's less motility. I, yeah, I think seems, I yeah we, we have American Aberdeen or Lowline, whichever you want to call them. And the point gets to be is some of these bulls they keep pushing now are show bulls. And, and I, I don't believe all the show bulls are just strictly being on grass. But we look at finding some of the older genetics that are 15-year-old uh, or 20-year-old bulls, figuring that they maybe have a little bit more grass genetics to them, hopefully. And some of them aren't famous bulls, so maybe they carry the same thing and they look good as far as what the bull looks good on paper or pictures. 
I should say on, on pictures, they look good. So short answers, I would go with the 15 year old, the old Steve Kenyon. You got a thought here? Basically, your question was, which one's more important, the bull or the cow? That's kind of how I took that. The cow has a lot more influence over the, the result. I don't want to be contradictory here a little bit, but I want I want to to back up a little bit maybe. And of all the ranches that I've done consulting for, we've done economic analysis, the, the quality of the bull, as long as you've got a decent bull, right? That has not been the weak link, right? So I always look at it as, as what's the weak link in your whole situation? Is it um, I mean, to develop a herd of cattle that are solid and 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 how you feed them and how you manage them. And there's so many more important things that you can put into your operation on an economic basis than going out and buying a more expensive bull because it's supposedly better. OK, as long as you've got a pretty good bull, I think there's better bang for your buck elsewhere. And I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be contradictory here, but that's where I lead with this conversation is. You know, buying that twenty thousand dollar bull is not going to make or you know make or break your farm. When there's so many other parts of your farm that are failing, right? And how you feed, and how you you know the amount of labor and equipment you put into it, the cost you put into it. So I know this is a talk about genetics and and improvements are better, but I, I think that that cow has more. And I'm not you know not near near as experienced as, as uh, Mr. Campbell here. Uh, but the the cow herd and how you manage them, I think, is more important than buying a more you know impressive bull. Yeah, I, I guess that's why with us with being AI wise, it's kind of nice because hopefully we can we stick with some of the bulls. But once you've got mother there, grandmother there, daughter there, that's one thing nice about doing AI. We can at least pull somebody else out of the out of the out of the canister and uh, hopefully keep improving the genetics as we keep. We've got basically two original cows that have a lot of the cows that we're breeding. So we're, we can see the strength there. So I, I guess I just kind of curious. So I was listening to him talking before about, you know, the cows on grass. So when the calves and uterus, it's getting used to being in on grass. And so that's why I just question on the bull. So I, that's my total question, I guess. So it's got answered. Well, and, and Steve Kenyon, thanks for bringing it back to the question. Uh, at the point of conception, it's 50-50. And then after that, it's all the cow. And the, the more clean and mineral-rich that inner uterine environment, she's the one that really makes the differences for the rest of that animal's life. And so if you've got a, a decent bull and you can clean up, the epigenetic side of things, everybody on the call has better genetics than they're currently expressing because I don't know virtually anyone on the call, but I can just tell you, we do not have Garden of Eden type genetics, or excuse me, epigenetics out there in our pastures. Maybe Gabe Brown's on the call and, and he would <laughs> set, me, set me straight here, but um, yeah, it, the cow, the cow way more influences the outcome of that calf than the bull does. Steve, do you have anything to add? And then I'm going to wrap us up. Yeah, I think we uh, we're we're just about out of time. Um, I, just as a as a follow up to that question, I mean, how many advertisings in the magazines do we see for bulls? 
right? And when really the cow is so much more influence over that uh, that that genetics. So anyway, just leave you with that thought. <laughs> if it's being advertised over and over and over, usually that's where I stay away from trying to put my money. So with that, I'm going to wrap us up just because we are over time. Um, I think that we could probably keep Steve Campbell here till midnight and be perfectly happy with that, but I'm not going to force him to stay on till midnight. So that being said, I just want to thank everybody for attending tonight. And I want, I'm going to be posting in the chat. Gateway Research Organization has a YouTube channel, a Facebook page, um, social media, Gateway Research or sorry, Greener Pastures Ranching is on social media so we'll post all of our connections there would love it if you'd follow or subscribe and with that being said do you guys have any closing thoughts so steve campbell um if you want to just kind of give closing thoughts on maybe an encouragement to producers going forward and then we'll follow up with steve kenyon it's really hard to find animals that are adapted to your environment if you're going someplace to buy animals and they're not shiny they're not adapted they're not thriving there it's going to be harder to make them thrive in your environment so you know that's kind of Fred Provenza sort of stuff and then oh my gosh at the very beginning of the Bonsma lectures he he said that he went around and found high producing dairy cows of a number of different breeds did a silhouette tracing of all of the animals and either reduced them in size or enlarged them until they were all the same size. And he said the remarkable fact is they were all the same shape. And the shape that works in an all grass environment is that red, black, south pole, whatever, solo cup cow, solo cup shape really works and then trying to get away from a mineral that buys a mineral company that's buying individual ingredients out of china whether you still want something you can open a bag just hold their feet to the fire on making sure there's nothing from china and if they him and haw they probably do have something from china in there and if you've got that cadmium hump in your herd You've got a cadmium issue, whether it came through a mixed mineral, a fertilizer you used, or fertilizer that somebody that you bought your feed from used. I'll end with that. Awesome. Thank you very much, Steve. That's that's great. Um, my final thoughts, I, I've spent years actually kind of defending Gerald Fry. Uh, I, I know he had a lot of criticism when he was doing his his talks and seminars about how they, well, none of that's scientifically proven, right? Swirls on the forehead and the, you know, the, this and the, that like different thing, the hormonal systems. And, and I would like to emphasize that 70 years of observation of monitoring cows, looking at them, watching them holds a lot more weight in my mind than two or three scientific studies that might prove it the other way around. I honestly there's been a lot of things in my career. I mean, it's not near as long as Gerald's was that I've, I've, I've seen in multiple herds that, you know what, that it, it's just that way. So I'm not, I'm not saying science is garbage. Don't, don't take this the wrong way, but 
um, years of observation uh, mean a lot to me in my decisions on my ranch as well. So uh, we didn't even get into, you know, a, a bunch of the th- things we I thought we might get into tonight. Um, but uh, there's lots of time in after networking, networking for that too. But um, just, just so you're aware, some of this stuff, you're like, Whoa, really? Like the swirl on their head means something. Um, yeah, it does. I, 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 I'm a strong believer in, in a lot of these things, uh, the way the hormonal systems develop the, the color of the top line, uh, di- different things that are observation based. Uh, I hold a lot of, of value in those. So I just kind of throw that out for some of the may- people maybe out here tonight that are kind of like, ah, eh, that doesn't sound quite right. Keep your mind open, and uh, it's amazing what some of this stuff can do. Awesome. Thanks, guys. And for anyone who hasn't been here before, this is the time where we turn off the recording. We start after networking, networking, and you're free to stay around as long as you want. Um, We just leave the room open. Everyone can chat. Steve Campbell, we really thank you for coming, and you are, of course, welcome to stay, but you are also welcome to leave if that's if that's your will. Um, but yes, yeah, so so please feel free to unmute your mics. Have a good time. And this is this is the time in the bar after the conference. <laughs>